Stand by America. It's time for real television as MMM Carpets brings you movies till the sun comes up. Thing. Welcome to Movies Till Dawn, a new podcast that's a safe space for filmmakers to talk about the fascinating and exasperating, always unusual and never quite the same thing twice process of creating motion pictures. I'm Raymond DeFelita, and I'm the show's Toastmaster General. We are back with a conversation uh, with Randall Kleiser, a marvelous director with a big list of credits. Uh, And I'll start by saying that you know, a lot of directors are very happy to have made a few movies that get out there and that people really like and, you know, and, and remember. And then there are some directors who go up, you know, to the, to the pantheon of the, the Oscar-winning movies and the, the awards movies. But very few directors have made a movie that is a legend uh, or, or a phenomenon. And, uh, and Randall Kleiser has. It's called Grease. Randall directed the movie version of Grease that came out in 1978. It became the most successful movie, a musical of, of all time. I think it was surpassed about 20 years later by Les Mis. Uh, and beyond it just being a big financial success, Grease has had a life as a movie that it's never quit. It, it's um, successive generations have discovered it. Kids today like Greece and that movie was made 40 years ago and I guarantee you there are no movies from 1978 that kids today like uh, but they love Greece uh, and it was actually it was the 40th anniversary of the movie last year and uh, Randall told us that there was a big celebration screening in Florida it was a massive jammed uh, event and John Travolta and Olivia Newton-John showed up and they sang and danced and everyone went crazy so uh, you know, so that's Greece, but of course he did. He's done so many other films: The Blue Lagoon, uh, Honey, I Blew Up the Kids, White Fang, uh, and we talk about a lot of these. Now, I just gave you all this info on Greece. It's not in part one of this conversation. I just led with it. Uh, in fact, because people always lead with it, I decided to close the interview with it. So you'll hear about Greece in, in part two. Uh, here in this uh, in this chapter of our conversation. Uh, you'll hear a little bit about how Randall went to USC and he was in George Lucas's class uh, and how his uh, master thesis film, Peach, led to him getting a job directing television and the, the movies of the week uh, were his training ground. Now, a lot of people don't remember the movies of the week, MOWs, uh, and sometimes called the disease of the weeks. Uh, these movies were all, the three the three networks, ABC, NBC, CBS, all made movies of the week. And so there's a lot of them out there. And they were sort of the B-unit training ground of, of the 1970s and 80s. Uh, and a lot of good directors came from, from that, that world, that training ground. Uh, Randall did several of them, which we talk about. And probably one of the most famous of the MOWs, Boy in the Plastic Bubble, starring John Travolta. And that led to Greece. Uh, but uh, we talk about that. We talk about how I, I, I find this wonderful, how DeMille's The Ten Commandments was the movie that inspired him to want to be a filmmaker. I met Randall uh, in the late 1990s when I was hired to do a polish on uh, a thriller that he was directing called Shadow of Doubt. It actually was it became a little more than a polish. It, it became like a major rewrite. Uh, and he was great to work with. He was super collaborative and super calm in, in somewhat stormy seas occasionally. 
but that's how we met, and we've stayed friends on and off. So here's part one of a conversation I had high up in the Hollywood Hills in November 2019 with my friend and collaborator, Randall Kleiser. I've been teaching at, at AFI, and I was saying to uh, my students, I don't understand really the kind of the fetish that some people still have for 35 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Uh, it all I remember about shooting 35 was the Bond Company guy <laughs> freaking out every day because I shot more than three takes or something. Right, Do you right. have feelings about the yeah. that whole? Because uh, you're very uh, in, uh, digitally, yes, you know, advanced. Yes. Um, well, the thing I like about digital is that um, you know it doesn't scratch, it doesn't j- weave. It's it's kind of like uh, it'll still be there, you know. Hopefully, if if we find a way to preserve these files, but. Um, you know, I look at old films, they always are scratchy and they've got, uh, they got gone magenta or something like that, the film. So I'm happy with digital. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What was the last time you shot 35? Oh, probably 10 years, over 10 years ago. Yeah. Maybe more. Yeah. I've recently done something, though, which is not even film or normal digital. Uh, I did a biometrically captured music video at... Um, Intel Studios, where they have this huge dome. Uh, it's one of the bigger sound stages. They have like 70 cameras around that are filming. We had 20 dancers in the middle, and then they're volumetrically captured so that when it's finished, um, you they become like holograms and they're dancing around. I can show it to you later if you want. To I'd see love it. to see it. Yeah, downstairs. Well, you've gotten very, you've gotten into the, this super cutting edge stuff. I remember seeing you at that virtual reality. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it, kind of convention that they were giving? Mm-hmm. And, and you had, I, I was trying to explain it to someone because it was a kind of a mind control experiment, I remember thinking. <laughs> what, what was that? Tell me about that. Well, um, it was, we did a series called Defrost. That we did 11 episodes. Each one was five minutes because people like to be in the headsets for short periods of time, usually. And um, I took the first episode to Sundance and then... Uh, then we made more and we took them to Cannes and then, now we finished them. And actually this Friday night, they're going to be showing them on a dome, which is an interesting idea. You know, it's designed to, to be on the headset, this virtual reality headset where you're 360, 3D looking all around. But we've, we've uh, reformatted it experimentally to see if it works on a dome with a big audience. So... It's going to be fun. When you say uh, the dome, do you mean like as if it were a surround, like a cinerama? Yeah, like, like a, pl- a planetarium. Right. We ran the uh, f- the producers' guild had a, an evening where they were showing uh, immersive cinema on domes, and we went to the Griffith Planetarium and we ran our our um, pilot on the dome, and it worked. So now on this Friday, we're going to run all the episodes on the dome. Oh wow! I'm going to come see that. Yeah, it's at the Downtown LA Film Festival. But the point is that. Um, it's it's it was designed for one format and now it might work for another so we're, we're going to see right is that what Vi- Vistorama is that the that Vistorama HD was basically trying to do Cinerama with HD back in the day and uh, it's just taking a, 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 a it was taking a, a lens a super wide lens and then cutting the top and bottom off and projecting on this on a um, sphere uh, no. Um, well, convex sort convex, of thing. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> it, was, it was imitating uh, Cinerama, but it, it was it, it didn't go anywhere. I mean, it was. I, d- I just think you would have had to have a whole 
a theater company do it, you know, AMC or something. But it, it was an idea, and it worked, but it didn't jump. How did you get started with, with that? I think that uh, my brother Jeff is a visual effects supervisor, and he's eight years younger than me, and, and all my career he's always been the guy who was saying, hey, look at this, look at this. Like he showed me virtual reality for the first time in like 2013 or something. And uh, when we did Flight of the Navigator, he showed me uh, how you do um, uh, morphing and um, image-based lighting and things like that. So I, I was always adapting what he was showing me to my films and, and projects. So I, I, that's why I'm slightly ahead of the normal curve. I, I think I saw virtual reality for the first time around then too, yeah. and I I would have guessed by now. It's a, it's a kind of disturbing experience, but a fascinating one yeah. because you really are. I think I walked into the uh, uh, Apollo, uh, mm. you know, mm -hmm. the spaceship, and mm -hmm. and you kind of do get lost. You looking yeah. around, you're in three sixty. You're in. A, I think they use the original sound yeah. uh, as part of it, and it is a kind of fascinating and kind of, but at the same time a little off putting in a way. Sure. I it, I wondered why it hadn't taken off why it hadn't become a bigger thing by now? Two reasons, I think. One, uh, a lot of people don't like to wear something heavy on their face. And two, uh, they don't want to sit for, for a long time where they're cut off from everything. And uh, Claustrophobia, think, basically. Yeah, I think when, the, when they get to be like wraparound sunglasses, that maybe it'll have a resurgence. Mm -hmm. uh, and, they're, and when it's cheap and easy, then I think it'll come back. What I found when I first saw it, which was the um, Tuscan Villa in in 3D in virtual reality, that where you could walk around this villa and, and wherever you wanted to go and go upstairs and stuff like that, it was all 3D, it looked very real. I thought this is a great thing for for performers, and so um, that's when I wrote Defrost, uh, which was actually a screenplay I had written at USC when I was there, like 50 years ago about uh, someone being frozen and brought back to life. And uh, so I, I dusted off that old screenplay and I turned it into a virtual reality project where the viewer becomes the woman who's been frozen. And so you look down and you see your body in a wheelchair and all the family comes over. Because, you know, when you can't speak back when you're in virtual reality and um, you can't really walk, at least with the technology that we were working with and so I adapted the script to that so all the actors are come up and look right in your face and they're talking to you and what's extraordinary is when these actors have eye contact with you in virtual reality it doesn't look like an actor it looks like a real person right there talking to you so it, it's very effective right and I, I don't know have you tried that at all with the, the narrative stuff I, I have well I've, I've no experience shooting it I but when I went to I think it was a convention in, in uh, uh, film and video convention in Las Vegas and they had several different VR things set up and what I found was the one film that they made that was narrative was kind of the least effective mm. to me mm. uh, and I think what they hadn't yet grappled with it was a short film mm -hmm. was they were still trying to um, they were still they were still using conventional cutting techniques oh, so yeah. if you make an over the shoulder yeah. and then you cut to the reverse suddenly the whole room around you has I spun know, around I so that. I found a lot of the time I was spinning around looking at my new environment I know yeah, it was it was a little it was weird I couldn't focus on the story let me put it that way <laughs> well we did all ours in, in single takes so that you know, no takes no, no cuts so you really feel like you're there and it's real it is reality yeah I can show that too before you leave. Yeah, I'd love to see. Yeah, I'd love to. <laughs> Got my little thing downstairs. I'll sit to go. 
Uh, you mentioned USC, and I, kn- I know you went there. Were you in George Lucas's film? Is that or is that Urban? Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> he was my roommate in, at, at, in college, and uh, we've been friends ever since. And he actually had a reunion this last summer, in, a few months ago in July. He he invited a whole bunch of us from school, a handful: Caleb Deschanel and Walter Murch and Willard Hike, Frank Marshall, Kathy Kennedy to his villa in Italy for 10 days. How fantastic. Oh, God, that was great. Yeah, so we all kind of like had a reunion and talked about the old days. And we were in the same class? Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, well, he was a little ahead, but, but we were, it was so small then. USC Film School was so small then that everybody was around to each other. Now it's huge and there's like all kinds of different buildings. Sure, yeah. Uh, was that, when I, when I was growing up, my father was friends with several... USC professors at the yeah. time. Did you know Erwin Blacker? Of course, yes. He was a writing professor. Yeah. yeah. I have all great memories of Erwin. Really tough, 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 tough with everybody. And I, I remember, though, he told me one of my scripts was a piece of shit, but very commercial. <laughs> and you said thank you to that odd compliment? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. He said, you'll go places, but I don't think your stuff is very good. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> That's okay. I'm not sure that you can say that as a professor to a student now no. without incurring the possibility of a lawsuit. <laughs> You're right. Well, now also the students can judge the professors, which didn't happen back then. You know, Each professor gets graded by the students. Did you know sort that? of like how Uber works. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your passenger or Airbnb. Or, <laughs> do, do, do they do that at AFI? You know, I, I don't know. Now I'm terrified. Better I, I better find that out. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I've only been there a few weeks. Yeah, but. how nice they are to you. All right. Yeah, Irwin and, and uh, of course, for years, our, our very close family friends were Mort Zarkoff. Oh, sure. Mort's alive still, I think. He is. Yeah. Mort was my uh, advisor on my master's thesis film, Page, which got my career going. And uh, it was uh, a film I did after I tried to do um, a master's thesis film based on a, on a local theater company's kind of arty theater production called Voyages. Very, very out there and I was doing it with all kinds of special effects it was kind of going to be very hard to connect to arty type film and I got halfway through it and ran out of money I couldn't get any grants or anything so I I went to my friend uh, director Curtis Harrington remember him? sure and I said hey Curtis I'm stuck I have this half done master's thesis what am I going to do and he said dump it and write something personal and so I did. I wrote a, a, a film about my grandmother, visiting my grandmother in a nursing home on Christmas Day. And that film um, became my master's thesis, and Mort was the guy who was on it. And uh, it turned out great. It got me uh, a contract at Universal, and it was selected for the uh, National Registry. Oh, family is here this time, Pete. Damien and, and Jerry and John and even Greg has flown all the way from California. How are you, Nana? Oh, I'm fine. And you know who I am? No. <laughs> You're kidding. Come on. What's my name? Sure you remember, Doris. You were just talking to me about it the other day, remember? Have a nice visit. I don't know. Well, it's actually, Peach is the first of your films that I ever saw because oh, yeah? they showed it to us in 
a seventh grade. Really? Uh, Where was sub- this? Well, in a, in, a, in, a, in a public school that is best forgotten. But for wow. some reason, that I had a good teacher who said, I want to show you wow. a film about aging and That's about cool. family. And so I remember seeing Amazing. it when I was maybe 12 years old or it's so. It's funny because just yesterday, we finally are going to put it on, um, on Amazon Prime. We're going to try to put it out there because it's been sitting in my closet for a long time. Yeah, I remember seeing Peach, and I think that must have been around... So it was a few years after it was made, because you then made, I think from there, you made a couple of TV movies. Yes. This is a, a genre that I, I, I don't know why they've all... Shouldn't there be a cable channel devoted to the, old, the network TV movies of the 70s and 80s? Because there's so many of them. You've got a great idea. Boy. But they yes. don't turn up anywhere. And you made one of the classics, Boy well, in a Plastic Bubble. You know what? I've been trying to figure out where the negative is for that because they're, the only existing copies are like off of the... Like a air... air off the air. Uh, you know, someone's v- VHS, VHS yeah, copy. Yeah, it's like it's in public domain, and so if I could get the negative and scan it with 4K, I mean, it would be great to get that out because it's just horrible, horrible quality of of it. And I've been trying to figure out who owns the negative now. The tests are in, and you're pregnant. Congratulations. Mr. Mrs. Lubitsch, she was born exactly like your first son, with no amenities whatsoever. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Give me a kiss. Oh, boy! Do you know how much your mommy and daddy love you? Do you? Do you really know how that? Do you know how much mommy and daddy love you? And who may not, for years to come, is finally coming home for the first time today. He's not getting in the air. Get out, baby. Oh, Tommy. Oh, I'm sorry, baby. Are you okay? Let me go. Let me go. Oh, he's not hurting you. He's just playing with you. The the TV movie was sort of the the kind of it replaced the studio B movie as right. the kind of the place younger filmmakers could get mm-hmm. their first mm-hmm. job directing if they were that. That fortunate, and so Peach got you. Uh, which Marcus was the- Welby actually. Was, I started with Marcus Welby because Peach was about a n- nursing home, and Marcus Welby was the doctor, so <laughs> they threw me there. But um, yeah, then Starsky and Hutch and, and uh, the rookies and all that stuff. But then, uh, t- first TV movie was called All Together. Now another one that's sort of buried in the vault somewhere that no one's seen. John Rubenstein was the star, and uh, it was about a family and you know emotional family dramas. That's another reason why Peach got me that. But yeah, the TV movies are the disease of the week. They used to they, call for it. a while, yeah, right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, and uh, I think Lifetime now does those kind of movies. You know. Yeah, yeah. I guess you could women say is, they're the uh, women. Usually, it's the stars. Or the women are the stars. And it's all about emotional dramas and stuff. And they were super tight schedules too, right? Four yeah, weeks, fourteen days, or something. Yeah. Wow. Uh-huh. Is that what you had for Boy in a Plastic Boat? Yeah. And he shot Travolta on a Saturday because he was doing Welcome Back Cotter at the same time. So he had it like fit into the Welcome Back Cotter's uh, uh, schedule. Well, so how many days did you have him? I guess it was somewhat, there was a little bit of an overlap, which is why we had to work on a Saturday. I think maybe it was during his hiatus, but it started up again or something. Right. 
Yeah, um, it, it's funny too because I, th I think I saw that in school as well. So you, you were you had an educational uh, <laughs> without knowing it, you had a presence mm. in, in the in the public school system. The other film that's the TV movie that's been shown a lot is The Gathering with uh, Edward Asner and Maureen Stapleton, which is kind of a Christmas special that they run practically every year uh, about a, a man dying of cancer and his getting his family together. So mm. Another another thing that Peach led to. Well, it's interesting because when I was looking at your filmography again before coming here, I saw, you know, there, you have a, you, there is a strain running through your film of a sympathy for the ill. Mm. And I would take it from Peach all the way to uh, It's My Party, which you made yes. 30 years later, I guess? Yes, and even to this virtual reality project, Defrost, same thing. Yeah, you're right. It's My Party was done, yeah, in 96, I think it was. Yeah, that was based on a real event that, that happened, and so. But um, I'm trying to think of. Yeah, there is a theme. And there. boy, in the plastic bubble, yeah, for that yeah. matter. Mm -hmm. That was based on uh, a real kid. David. David it? Vetter. I think so. He died. Did you have any connect? Did, did, how was what was the development of that? Were you brought think, in court? Was it something you worked on? Or it was. Uh, I think Joe Morgan Stern, Stern wrote the original script, mm -hmm. and then uh, Douglas Day Stewart was hired to to uh, work with uh, the script and, and do a new version. And I was brought on at that point to work with Doug, and um, we got along really well. I, I hired him later to do the Blue Lagoon screenplay, but. Uh, we did research on, on how these kids um, have to be kept in these areas, and we used the actual Lanair, I think it's called the Lanair room, where it's a plastic a room with plastic doors, and then one area is open, and they have the wind blowing out so that no germs can get in. So that it's the, it's an open door, but it, but it uh, keeps the germs out. We used that the actual thing at the end of the movie. When he walks out, Did, was there any? Uh, because I know, I know there's always some they didn't get it right segment uh, of the. Oh, yeah. Did the medical community well, were they for it? Did they like your film? You no, know, I don't remember. <laughs> that was too long ago, and I don't recall any reaction from the medical community right now. Maybe if I racked my brain, I would. Uh, but it certainly was a, a, if not controversial, at least a very high profile. Yeah. TV movie of that era. Yeah. I had a whole thing when Travolta came out of the bubble and he went over and he touched the trees and I had him going around and touching and feeling things and Aaron Spelling looked at the cut and said, get to the girl. <laughs> <laughs> so I had to cut out all my arty stuff of him exploring the, uh, the environment. <laughs> That's funny. Well, that's why he's Aaron Spelly, yes, and, uh, exactly. and I'm not. I, I would have said, oh, do more of that experimental stuff, Randall. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, the, the, the TV movie. So was that the last of, of that year? Did you go from that to Greece, I guess? I, I, after the gathering, I went to Greece. Oh, gathering was then, yeah. 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 And I, uh, don't forget, Dawn, Portrait of a Teenage Runaway. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> that one, I tried to find a clip to show on a reel and I couldn't find anything that I wanted to show it's the one movie that I just thought mm, <laughs> nothing here works <laughs> really yeah yeah yeah, yeah it, it, it's it's interesting that they're not uh, do the networks own them I don't know that they're they've just kind of vanished and Good I know question. there's going to be hundreds and hundreds of them yeah the, the, the movie of the week channel would be a huge hit huge hit well, let's do it. We'll yeah, do. okay. Start with Boy in the Plastic Bubble. I want to find out where that negative is. I wonder if it also might be parked somewhere online. 
not in it's a, the strangest it, things turn up on YouTube. People yeah, put up but, old video mm, cassettes. Not, not and, a high high res. I don't think they ever did a high res uh, scan. It's just the old VHS versions are everywhere. Right. Yeah. But before before we leave USC, because it's obviously you were there in like kind of the heyday, the the, the USC that everyone mm. n- now knows is really based on the US because that's where Lucas amazing. and you and all these g- kids came yeah. from. Um, where did where did you need you had this unique relationship with Nina Foch for so much of your life. Where where did that start? Well, um, I saw her in The Ten Commandments, which is the movie that made me want to become a director when I saw the opening of the Red Sea. And then I came to USC and heard she was actually teaching in the drama department. I was 18, a freshman, and I wasn't supposed to be able to get into that class, but I I whizzled my way in. And um, I just... You know, was staggered by how smart she was and how she just had this great way of teaching. And so we were friends and uh, for about 40 years, and it took me many, many decades to get her to let us film her class. And when we finally did, you know, we started to uh, cut it together as a teaching tool. And she would come into the editing room and say, oh, no, don't use that part because I'm being mean to that Asian girl. <laughs> so, so I'm going to put this on hold till she is gone <laughs> to a better place and then we can do it right. So that's what we did. We, uh-huh. waited, we waited and now it's, it's, it has all the you know, warts and everything. And Her toughness was wonderful. The way she would rip into students was the way she taught them and it was great. And it's, it's fun to watch too. You weren't. You clearly weren't daunted by these professors who. who <laughs> I was. I mean, she was ter- She was terrifying. When I was in her class, it was very scary. But once I was out, then I realized how, what her technique was and how great it was. And now this this video, this teaching video, is on online uh, at ninafoshproject.com, and you can either buy the DVD or the or the online version. And I think it's the best thing that any director, writer, actor, singer, animator can do. We have a, on that website, we have all these different people taught, who, who are taught by her saying what she taught them. Hmm. And it was a labor of love, and, and it, it turned out great. It's on Amazon and has like all five star reviews. It's one of the best things I've done is to. And you stayed, and but you stayed very. She she feels like a mentor of yours. Oh yeah, for, yeah. I, I I mean I used to babysit her son, and her son is now um, a good friend, and his his son is now wants to be an actor, and I've been helping him get an agent and things like that. Oh great! <laughs> well, I remember when we worked together. Yeah. You put her in. That's right. In that, in, in, in in Shadow that, of Doubt. Shadow of Doubt. Yes, that's right. I loved working with her. My favorite moment was. When we did the scene uh, with all the black tie people, and she was dressing them as the, the mother of the candidate, and I was up on a crane on one end, and she was way, way at the other end at the podium, and I was saying, "Hey, Nina, <laughs> isn't this cool?" Because <laughs> you know, I never thought uh, when I saw her in the Ten Commandments that I would be on a crane directing her with a thousand extras. And, and and on a crane is perfect because you can. That's where you picture Demille directing. Yes, exactly. From a crane exactly. with a bullhorn. And exactly. This is an incredible moment. Yeah. What, what, so what was it about Ten Commandments that would have spoken spoken to you? Well, I was ten, and uh, it was the, the pageantry, the, the theatrics, the over the top. Uh, Costume designs, the, the Cecil B. DeMille narrating it in this very, very 
you know, dramatic fashion and coming out on on the stage in the front at the, and talking to the audience and saying you're going to see this. And I said, oh, that's a director. I didn't know. I didn't know movies were made by anybody. And so it was very clear. You know, this man came out and said, I'm going to show you this movie I made. And then you see the movie, and it's it, the music is amazing. The the, the the drama is so clear, you know, everything, all the characters are super clear. They're like, they're like day glow, uh, <laughs> you know, everything dialed up. So for a 10-year-old, you know, it's, it's, it's just dazzling. I thought it dazzling. Paramount Pictures is proud to announce the return of the greatest motion picture of all time, Cecil B. DeMille's masterpiece, The Ten Commandments. Intact. Uncut. The original film, acclaimed as a supreme emotional experience. What a story it tells. What loves it unveils. What majesty it encompasses. What drama it unfolds. One of the greatest adventure stories ever hurled from any book. Well, that, that was the era of the biblical epic. Yeah. Did, did, was that your first genre that you followed? The King of Kings yeah, and the greatest that. story ever sure, told? It was, and, it was so big and, and exciting and... Uh, you know, for, as a kid, and that, that just felt wonderful. Um, I mean, later when I look back at the Ten Commandments, I mean, there's a lot of really, really silly stuff in it. It's a way over the top performances, but as a kid, it, it was perfect. Yeah. So if that one, and you didn't come from any showbiz background, I, I don't believe. So if you're 10 years old and, and you go home after seeing a biblical epic and you tell your parents, I want to be a director. <laughs> I remember George Cukor saying in an interview that when he told his parents he wanted to be, I guess, a theater director, he said, I might as well have told them I want to be a drug pusher. <laughs> they were horrified by the thought for some reason. What, what was your well, parents' reaction? I was really more interested in being an animator because Walt Disney had his show every week, The Wonderful World of Disney. I'm sure you saw that. Okay. Disney's Wonderful World of Color. And every week they would show how things are done. It was the only place you could see that. There was no... YouTube, there was no uh, behind-the-scenes footage of anything except on the Disney thing. So I watched how they made animated cartoons, how they made Sleeping Beauty particularly, and um, with the, the multi animation multiplane camera table where they could move um, trees uh, at different levels so it looked like depth, you know? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yep. And so I, in shop, I made one, <laughs> 13, an animation multiplane camera table. And I was shooting with an 8 millimeter camera, sh on a, shooting straight down. And I and made animated cells with uh, getting those plastic things that you use to cover uh, paper. And inking on one side and painting on the other. And I did this whole long animated project uh, and filmed it uh, of this person walking through the woods with all the, uh, the things... The, the trees and the depth and everything, and I got it back and it was all, <laughs> you know, it was un, unwatchable. But I tried. <laughs> did that end your career as an animator? Is that when no, you moved to what, live action? What ended my career as an animator was I did finally make an animated five-minute film in eight millimeter, regular eight, not super. And our family drove across the country to Disney Studios, and I went to the. To the gardens with my little yellow Kodak box and said, I want to show this to Walt Disney. And they said, do you have an appointment? No. And they, so I was turned away and that, that ended my career. That, that broke your heart. Yes. I don't know why my parents didn't say, this isn't going to work. <laughs> 
Well, maybe they thought that meant you would leave showbiz once <laughs> and for all, right? <laughs> maybe. But I went back and started making live-action films in the basement in 8 millimeter. Mm. A lot of people did that, like Spielberg, I think, did. And nowadays, every kid does it with video. But You just need a phone. Yeah, but in yeah. those days, it was kind of unusual because you, you had to buy the film, you had to uh, take it to the drugstore and have it developed, and then it came back, and then you had to cut it with physically and... There was, if you wanted to put sound on it, you had to send it away to get a stripe on it. And then get the oh, see that? Yeah, that's... It was really hard. The, the next wave after that was what I grew up with, which was Super 8. Mm. Super 8 was sound on film. Oh, so oh, you didn't, okay. and, and the mic was built into the camera. Ah, perfect. But, but it, sort of, yeah. because it actually, you so heard the ahead. camera constantly through the whole it thing. Was, wasn't it like 10 frames ahead yeah. or something like that? So if you made a cut, you just cut. Yeah. <laughs> you remember? I do yeah. remember all that stuff. But I do, and, and the editing machine was this little plastic <laughs> thing with the rewinds on it. But it all worked. I, I, I loved using it, and it, yeah. you could actually piece together your little... Super 8 movie, which I, I, yep. I did all through grade school and but junior high school. it was so much harder than it is today. Oh, yeah. Really much harder. You know, you had to really want to do it then. Now, now it's just like, bam, easy. Well, in a sense, too, I, I, I wonder, uh, and I hate to hear myself sound this way, but in the good old days, <laughs> but did, did, that, did slowing it down actually perhaps have its own value that might be a, Maybe a, so. a little stronger because yeah. yeah it took a long time for me to piece together a, a 10 minute short mm-hmm. comedy for mm-hmm. some reason I was always doing remakes of Three Stooges movies that oh, I liked fun. with my, with my friends yes. <laughs> yeah um, yeah you had to think ahead and you had to you had to work on every little bit of it and and then what I had to do was to loop it uh, loop all the stuff and because I didn't, we didn't have direct sound, so I had to bring people in and have them try to match the lips, and you could only do it once because if you made a mistake, you had to go back to the beginning. So it was really, really deadly, deadly. What were what were your short? What were your, your eight millimeter shorts well, about? Well, I did one called um, Jungle Detective, which was about a, a, a man who had a, a a detective agency in the middle of the jungle. Sounds like a Three Stooges movie, was <laughs> And he gets a call that uh, a prisoner's escaped from a penitentiary nearby, and he has to track him down, and he happens to be an exact double of him. So he goes into the jungle and finds the guy, and, and they have a fight where the two actors are playing the same part, and, you know, and they go to a big uh, temple where the, the, he pulls a diamond out, and the whole temple falls down on him, so he had forced perspective and matte shots and split screens and all that stuff. Oh, how crazy. <laughs> yeah. So this was basically uh, uh, tra- training for Honey, I Blew Up the Kid. Yes, exactly. Or I guess even before that, <laughs> yes. you, you, know, you were working with effects. Yeah, and the other one I did was When the Cat's Away, which was about uh, kids who have a party when their parents go away for a weekend and all the, the, the hijinks that happened. Hijinks ensue. <laughs> yes, hijinks ensue. <laughs> and that was about an hour long, and, and I did that one in... Uh, Cinemascope. I, I got an anamorphic lens that I shot uh, on the eight millimeter camera, and then we put it on the projector and made it widescreen. Wow! And I put a big widescreen in my backyard, and uh, so that's the that precur- that's the precursor to Vistorama. Yeah, for you. <laughs> exactly. I, I see these themes running through your life. It's true. It's true. That was exactly it. The, I still have the lens, uh, the, this, the kinescope lens, and uh, yeah, it's pretty fun. Uh, and then the last day of senior year in high school I had all my senior class come to the backyard with blankets and 
the big screen was set up, and I ran this thing that I worked worked on all year. And uh, I just gotten into USC, and then they, they they thought of me as some kind of weirdo until that moment. And then they said, "Oh, that's what you were doing." <laughs> you, you became the the coolest kid in yes, school at the, the end of the whole the last term. day of school. Yes. <laughs> So did you use that to get into USC? Mm-hmm. Well, no, no. Actually, the one I used to get into USC was called Hands in Innocence, which was based... I used to work with emotionally disturbed children. My father was a psychologist at, at a school. And so I spent went a summers uh, teaching... Or not teaching, but making lanyards with emotionally disturbed children. And I got to know one of these kids, and I made a movie about what I thought... I just observed her, and then I made a movie about what she was thinking, and that's the movie that got me into USC. It's done in black and white, and she has a, a, a breakdown, and it goes to negative, and she's going crazy, and it goes back to black and white, and stuff like that. Did, so that's interesting, because you know, you've worked a lot with kids. Yeah, yeah. The worst time was, honey, I, shrunk, honey, I blew up the kid, because we had a two-year-old as the lead, and we used a double... A, brothers, identical twins, and they had no idea they were even in a movie, so I had to trick them into doing everything. From Walt Disney Pictures, the man who did the unthinkable. Honey, I shrunk the kid. It's at it again. <laughs> I blew up the baby. Rick Moranis. Put daddy down. Honey, I blew up the kid. Stop before someone gets hurt. Oh. Rated PG. Starts Friday, July 17th. And the parents were behind this, obviously. They were behind, yeah, often off camera, you know, and I'd tell them, okay. The problem was, that they, they learned the term rolling. And when they said rolling, they said, no rolling. And then they learned, I want to go to my trailer. <laughs> and so I had to do find tricks to, to not say rolling and just to, to make a circular motion with my finger and uh, not do sticks at the beginning and um, often have this person play kumbaya on a guitar uh, and then try to get them to look in the right direction <laughs> and keep the crew away so that they, they weren't aware that there was, they were being filmed. That everyone was staring at them. Yeah, that was really hard. Yeah. I, I've found on the, on the couple of occasions I've worked with kids that it's, it's an entirely different story if they trust and like the actor in the scene with them. Yeah. That that's who they really... Yeah, relate to and I and I I wondered how much fun Rick Moranis would have. He was great. He was great. He would improvise with the kid, and there's a lot of improv in the film, uh, back and forth, like a whole dialogue scene that, that, that he's talking to the kid, and the kid's making up the dialogue. It was great. It was perfect. Rick was perfect. I remember first seeing Rick Moranis on the SCTV. Yeah, and. Uh, and I didn't know who he was at all, and he instantly became my one of my favorite comedians. I said, mm. "This guy can do anything. He could do. Mm-hmm. He did the strangest things. He would do Mel Torme singing the uh, Star Spangled Banner with like mm. bebop phrasing." And I said, "Where does this wow. get this stuff come from? From this guy? I've always been so fascinated by him uh, as, as an artist. As his career to raise his kids, I understand, and I, I don't know what, what, whether he's coming back or not. I don't know. Yeah, he was, he was easy to work with, very professional." Very uh, snarky and fun. <laughs> yeah, that movie has. I remember showing it uh, uh, to my kid when he was pretty young. Yeah. Uh, uh, but it, it has that sense of spirit and playfulness that I think he. I, I had to assume he yeah. brought a lot oh, of that. Yeah. That you were letting him, giving him a lot of leeway yeah, as an absolutely. actor. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. He was a good improver. Yeah. 
Yeah, I would find I, I I actually find it scarier working with with kids than with adult actors, which says a lot, uh-huh. because like you're saying, you kind of have to trick them into it. You have to kind of find them, you know, the sweet spot of making them comfortable, and yet also there's got to be some discipline going on about what you're uh, have doing. Have you ever worked with animals? Well, no, I was going to ask you about that because you've worked you with plenty. Kids are bad. <laughs> you've worked with wolves and oh, dogs and yeah. hippos, uh, pigs. Uh... Well, tell me about that. That's 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 uh, uh, White Fang we're talking about. There comes a time in a young man's life. You up there for the gold? Yeah, that's all right. Well, it's out there. Just wait for somebody to pick it up. When he must face the world alone, he must discover who is the enemy and who is his friend. <laughs> Both man and wolf must learn the first rule of the wild, survival. And as they grow, they will discover that the greatest secret of survival is friendship. All he needs is a little bit of kindness. In a land where nature was the greatest challenge, they shared an incredible adventure. Holy mackerel. Burn him out. From Jack London's thrilling story. Walt Disney Pictures presents Ethan Hawke of Dead Poet Society and one extraordinary wolf. In Jack London's White Fang, together they found the courage to survive. I think I had seen the movie The Bear. Do you remember that? The Bear? No, Jean-Jacques I know I think did it um, I saw the bear and what I what I was amazed by was that he had used the animals like actors and had done dolly shots with them and had them hit marks and stuff and I thought that was so cool so I wanted to do it that way and so I was uh, so I worked with the trainers about you know having the uh, training the, the dogs to start at one place and stop at another and have the dolly track go with it so they're performing you know and it was all done with clickers and, and training. And one key scene in White Fang was when uh, he is attacked by the um, pit bull. And it grabs his neck. And it's, and it's in the book. It's, it's a very um, vivid passage from the book where it's all from White Fang's point of view about, about what, what, what was going on and having this dog around his neck. So I wanted to shoot that. And to do that, we, we uh, today, of course, it I think they're remaking it, uh, and they're going to do it with CGI wolves. And right, there's no CGI at that point. No yeah. CGI, so we had to do it real. And to do it, we they raised a, a puppy pit bull and a puppy um, wolf from birth, and they put a leather strap around the the, um, the wolf's neck, and the, and the pit bull was was uh, trained to always hang on to that, so that when they grew up and the movie was made, this is a matter of months. We shot the scene and it looked really scary because it looked like it went right for it and it looked really horrifying. But they were just playing this thing that they had done since birth. Well, so how long how long was the project in development? Did you have to did you have to re- raise several of them along the way and you know, <laughs> no, start over again if the movie was, got postponed? Or I was brought in to replace Chris Men- Menges. Um, I think <laughs> the the project had gotten over budget and out of hand uh, because. Uh, there was some kind of problem with one of the producers who, 
who selected the location and made it all start to happen. And it was on a place you couldn't reach by by plane or, or by road. You could only get there by boat. I was brought in to fix or to, to take over White Fang. And um, so everything had was sort of fr pretty far along. And the trainer, Cliff, Clint Rao, uh, had done the journey of that Natty Gan with uh, Jeremy Kagan. Mm -hmm. And we used the same wolf from that. So, but he was the one who came up with the idea of raising these the pit bull and the little wolf to do the, to do the shot. Yeah, I, I believe the, the wolf dog was named Jed. Jed, yes. And he's a professional actor dog. He, was, he appears yes. in other, well, he was, yeah. <laughs> yes, yes. He, he and, and uh, Clint was very um, uh, respectful of the dog and treated him like a star. I mean, uh, one day he came up to me and said, um, Clint, I mean, Jed can't work today, he's depressed. And I thought, uh huh, okay. <laughs> you know, uh, and he had to have a special trailer. And yeah, he was treated well, but he was the star of the movie. So. What was in his trailer? <laughs> dog food. <laughs> that was it. Um, but you know, did he have hanger-on dogs or? You know? <laughs> well, there were several matching dogs. Right. And uh, there's one particular sequence where where Ethan Hawke is supposed to tame White Fang, and and uh, it was also from the book a very specific passage for the book that I wanted to make sure worked and um, so we used three wolves one was which was skitterish one which was semi-tame and then Jed at the end and by cutting back and forth with uh, with Ethan as he's trying to talk to him it looks like the wolf is calming down but actually it's three totally separate wolves that don't even look alike and oftentimes I show that clip for students and I say how do you think we did this and they all have these theories but nobody notices that they're, they're totally different wolves right and then you look at it again and they go, oh yeah, I get it. That's the end of the first part of my conversation with Randall Kleiser. I hope you enjoy part two. If you enjoyed listening to Movies Till Dawn, you can visit my blog where I post videos related to the subjects that I interview. Just go to moviestilldawn.blogspot.com. You can find this podcast at moviestilldawnpodcast.com. But we're also available on most of your favorite podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, TuneIn, Spotify, and YouTube. I would love to hear from you. If you're inspired to reach out, you can email me at moviestilldawnpodcast at gmail.com. And please feel free to follow me on Twitter at RealRDEF. That's R-E-E-L-R-D-E-F. And if you have a film geek in your life, or even just a mildly curious fan, spread the word that we're here. Thank you.